Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Low Carbon Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low carbon, high energy conversation with your host, Joe Batir. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello and welcome to the Low Carbon Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS. I'm your host, Joe Batir. This is the show where we bring you low carbon, high energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. This week, we have Isabel Chan from Technip FMC on the show. Isabel is a product manager from for integrated onshore production and she's going to be talking to us about the iProduction system from Technip FMC and and kind of give us some details on that. So Isabel, can you give me some of your background and a short background on Technip FMC? Yeah, sure. So I was born and raised in Houston, pretty unusual for the area. Um, and I grew up around energy and I just, I really loved it and I was exposed to it my whole life. And so I have a little bit of a different perspective than maybe someone who came from the outside. Um, and so uh I went into chemical engineering because it seemed like a really great place to learn how to solve problems. And there are plenty of problems in the oil industry from top to bottom, right? Uh, and you get some really exciting problems and you get to work with really smart people. So I was really drawn to that and I, I just, you know, loved um, working in there. And I, I started out uh, in the refinery. Then I went to an EPC firm and I learned how to design um, LNG plants. And I actually went to start up an LNG plant in Angola. And then I came to uh, Technip FMC. So they did some of the most exciting projects that were at the bottom of the ocean and really had some interesting technological challenges there. So um, yeah, I, I just wanted to explore all these different things. And um, around 2015, the surface world was really heating up with all these different unconventional uh, issues. And I really wanted to try and tackle that. So we moved into trying to look at flow back and production. And it's just kind of snowballed there. You know, when you're a chemical engineer, you're really uh, drawn to problems that are um, a system. And you look at everything as sort of um, from the start of the oil all the way to uh, putting it into the pipeline. It's just one of those things where you, you see everything working together. And so, yeah, um, that's how we've approached um, production in general. And uh, Technip FMC, um, it is really well known for the subsea um, in the subsea space for some of the most challenging projects in, in the world. And um, we're really a technology leader in that space, especially with uh, wet trees. And a lot of the same challenges that you have with putting trees at the bottom of the ocean 
are really similar to certain things that we're talking about now and how do you treat uh, carbon, how do you harness wave energy, how do you um, take advantage of all these different kinds of um, these different kinds of energy, this different kind of materials, and and how do you transition that into something that is is real and tangible? Because it's it's easy to have lots of ideas on how to do it, but the act of doing it is much harder. And I think that's one of the great things about the company is they're really focused on uh, creating tangible things out of it. Yeah, that's really great. And that's, it is always fun to think about things like wave energy and things like putting putting a tree at the bottom of the ocean. Just to make sure we're, we're on the same page, you're basically talking about all of the infrastructure that is required to actually keep that well in place safely and produce fluids from that well. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, we look at the whole infrastructure again, the whole system of how do you get that out of the, the ground and then how do you maintenance that? Because it's at the bottom of the ocean. It's going to be pretty difficult to mess around with. So the challenge is making sure that you can interact with that tree safely, you can do repairs on it safely, um, and that's why it requires some of the brightest minds in the industry. Mm-hmm. Well, as much as I would love to talk about offshore and bottom of the ocean technology, today we are going to focus on the eye production system. So I've watched the video and we're not, we'll put a link in the show notes, but we're obviously not going to watch the video right here, right now. So can you give us a quick rundown of what is the eye production system? What are we really, what are we talking about here today? So eye production is a holistic system. In the video, you see the physical pieces of equipment that make it up. And what we've done with the physical equipment is that we've um, used a lot of our knowledge from subsea or offshore um, separations technologies. And we've allowed, um, we've condensed the uh, equipment so that you can make the same throughput in the system, but you require less equipment. So that's not particularly revolutionary. Um, but we have a piece of equipment at the heart of our system, which we call the advanced oil stabilizer. And that stabilizer um, can uh, help you manipulate heat and manipulate the pressure at any given point in the system. And the way the entire system optimizes itself and works together enables you to create more oil and flare less. Um, I I know that's a pretty big claim. You can claim anything in the models and simulation, but um, we have actually seen it in practice um, with our first deployment. So that's the first part of, of eye production is the physical equipment. The second part of it is something I kind of hinted at the end of that, which is we have a digital component that is partially um, just a typical control system. We have computation at the edge, so a little bit higher level than just a regular control loop, um, optimizing how everything is working together so that you can increase your reliability of each piece of equipment. And then you have the cloud portion of it, where we're doing higher level analytics, trying to figure out um, different things that would allow us to look at preventative maintenance. And those are all the first principles items right now. So our models and our digital twins are all based on first principles. And then we're looking at higher order things um, with the data that we're gathering. 
That's that's really cool. So I guess that makes me makes me wonder, say five or ten years ago, really when the shale revolution started, is something like the eye production system would do you think it would have been possible then? Because you're talking about a lot of cloud computing, computing on the edge. It it just those aren't things that were were common, say when when horizontal drilling first became common. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you're you're right. Which is this would not have been a good fit for at the b- very beginning of the shale revolution um, because the appetite for the specific things that we're doing were not there either, right? Um, and it requires quite a bit of um, a shift in mindset. You know, how are we going to approach this problem or this um, this opportunity to create things in, in a better way? Um, so a few years ago, e- even three years ago, when a lot of these um, digital products, this higher computing power, these were all available, but there was no appetite to try and do that, right? The old ways were working fine. They were, you know, they were still making enough to get by. There was still private capital that didn't necessarily have the same demands that, you know, the capital on the market does today. So I think um, our system is not necessarily a response to that, but it does feed into how do you solve that problem. And it comes with the approach of how we designed the entire system in general. You know, we wanted to take, you know, in the in the triangle of how do you solve a problem, um, we wanted to approach the tier of engineering out the problem uh, from from the very bottom, right? Um, so we we took a look at the system and said, if we could redesign this today, what would we do differently? And you know. I think the control system is one of the easiest places to tackle because it's been the biggest place where we've gotten gains in um, compute power, the ability of what you can do at the edge. It's just so exponentially higher now. And we haven't taken advantage of that necessarily um, in oil and gas. And we are also, we have demands to do it at the edge because a lot of the remote places we have, the cell connection isn't reliable. Um, we, we need a fast response because some of these things can get out of control very quickly. Um, so we really need to make sure that we have that quick response and that comes from, you know, uh, that improvement in compute power and also what we can do in in general at the edge. That's, that's really cool. So (laughs) the, I do want to kind of circle back around though, you were talking about appetite Three years ago, we didn't have the appetite for this. You stated that there was companies were getting by with the status quo, the traditional production systems. So if I'm if I'm hearing you correctly, nowadays there's something different. Now we are are we interested in I mean that really what I'm asking is, is this is the eye production system created more out of a demand to get higher returns or is it more out of the current state of affair with ideas like ESG and environmental, social and governance? Yeah. So I think 
Um, it, it's sort of a uh, happy coincidence that we were already developing something. We um, we have a, a great breadth of engineering in our team, people who have experienced a lot of different things. We've had people who were um, inspectors that have lived in different parts of the country um, that really have brought that kind of knowledge into the team. So uh, we have someone who lives very close to Colorado who did a lot of work in the DJ, and they are definitely at the forefront of, of what's to come for the rest of the basins, right? So it's almost like looking into the future, um, what kind of restrictions might be uh, put upon the rest of the industry. And a lot of the solutions that we're putting together coincidentally do look a lot like what was in the DJ, but they're kind of brought up another notch for the amount of production that we have in the Permian um, and the specific challenges that they have in the Bakken. But um, I'd actually like to walk you through a really great example that we have um, of a uh, trial that we're running in the Bakken right now. Um, so we took out part of the digital optimization portion of uh, iProduction, which we call SmartVP, and it's a brownfield offering that helps uh, operators of every size and shape try and optimize their overall process. So we take data from the system, and if they don't have the data available, we have wireless temperature and pressure transmitters that can all go into our panel, and all that data can be fed back into this data system at any point, but we have it through our own secure terminal. Um, so, or server, not terminal. And um, in this trial, we looked at how do we optimize a system, and we suggested that you add a certain piece of equipment. So we added this one piece of equipment, and we had all of the data computation going around. And so far, in 22 days, uh, we have saved 4.4 million scuffs of flaring and turned that into 350 barrels of oil. So you said 22 days, and you saved how many scuffs? Four, four million scuffs. Okay. And what does that actually mean? So that's around uh, 300 metric tons of CO2 equivalent. And that's, that's, a, that's a great result in itself. You're decarbonizing this production. And this was, this was a traditional, a conventional vertical well that that turned into that you utilize this new equipment on well so this was an unconventional well and oh. so um, what they typically do in in the Bakken they have really nice hot oil um, and that really hot oil um, kind of treats itself right very similar to the Permian oil and they have a specific measure of seals quality called the reed vapor pressure we call it RVP for short and um, in order to, to meet that, normally you, you take your um, oil uh, down certain pressure and temperature steps, and then you'll heat it up a little bit. Um, most of the facilities engineers will tell you during the summer, the heater treaters are off for the whole summer. It's just hot enough that you don't have to worry about meeting that oil quality. Um, but one of the things that does mean is sometimes that oil's too hot. Right. 
And so when it hits tanks at that, that hot temperature, you can often see that um, you're flaring off a lot of tank vapors. Um, so we were concentrating on this proof of concept to minimize those tank vapors. Now, I'm sure you're wondering, well, why doesn't everyone just put coolers on tank vapor or right on the oil before it hits the tank and then voila, you, you've met um, that restriction. Well, in places like the Permian, you have an RV, uh, RVP of nine PSIA, right? You have that certain restriction and most oil is gonna meet that restriction. It's gonna be on that borderline. It's just naturally there. Um, it might be why they picked nine. <laughs> But um, in, in the Bakken, they have a higher one. So they have a 13.7. So you have more room to put more oil into the pipeline. And RVP itself is really hard to measure. Um, people have to manually take samples. They have to go in and, um, you know, figure out how to... Um, where to take the sample. Normally it's not pressurized, which means that you're going to get an unexpectedly lower <laughs> number and they've just kind of thrown on a factor and said, eh, you know, maybe add, you, you divide it by 0.834, right? And it's just sort of a factor that everyone uses because it's in a guideline. Um, and, and so we're trying to... Um, make sure that we're meeting requirements um, and we're still operating safely, but you can actually put more liquid into the pipeline um, and, and they're losing that today. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool how that, how you're utilizing new technology to not only stop that flaring, so you're, you're essentially turning what would have been flared into oil that you can then then sell. So so I guess the you keep talking about the the new pieces of equipment and the new the new digital interface. So I guess just to make sure we're on the same page, what would you say really are the the key differences in the eye production system, the, the things that if somebody was, was just listening to this one soundbite, what are the most important parts of the eye production system that, that sets you apart? I would say it's the holistic approach and how all the pieces of equipment really work together to increase that reliability increase oil and minimize flaring. Now, why do I keep harping on increasing the reliability, right? Um, one of the biggest uh, reasons for flaring is actually downtime in your vapor recovery units. And the vapor recovery units take low pressure gas and they compress it and then they put it into um, the sales gas pipeline. But uh, these compressors normally have pretty big compression ratios, um, you know, between 20 and 40, um, which is not a great compression ratio for most of these compressors. Even if you have an oil flooded screw, 40 is probably asking for quite a lot from that compressor. And so these compressors for all of their, um, 
will just often have downtimes based on how much liquid you're getting, a liquid carryover or liquid production from condensation. Um, they just are rotating pieces of equipment. So if you get anything dirty in there, it'll break down. And what we want to do is try and increase the reliability by um, kind of mitigating these different factors, like how much gas overall has to go into that vapor recovery unit. If you can adjust the different levels around your system to make sure that you minimize gas to your vapor recovery unit and you're, you know, depending on how you want to optimize your system, then you can also just prevent flaring in the first place, right? It goes back to that principle of trying to engineer out the solution or the problem, not the solution. Yeah. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. Basically, you're, I try and think of it almost like a, I'm a geologist, so I like analogies. And it sounds like before everything was, was very reactive, almost felt more of like a roller coaster, like, as you have higher temperatures, you need to cool it off. As you get lower temperatures, you need to heat it back up. Eventually you get a lot of gas in your, in your recovery, vapor recovery unit. You may have to flare some that causes compression or at your compressor station and it ramps up, ramps down. Just a very, a very reactive, very, uh, a very chaotic almost process. Whereas now what you're doing is you're trying to predict and prevent and smooth that all out. Instead of a roller coaster, it's more of like the lazy river. Absolutely. So that's, that's very cool. Now, so it sounds like this was really developed for, for shales, for the unconventional revolution. Is this something that can be used in in older fields you gave the bakken example is this something that can be used kind of all over the oil patch so anywhere that there are liquids that's a great place for it so um it really is a liquid targeted system so the pieces of equipment that we have and the you know digital piece and optimization it's all focused on getting the most barrels out of the ground um, that's not to say there won't be other developments later on its, in its life, but in the current iteration, it's really liquids targeted. And just out of curiosity, is there a, have you seen a cutoff in terms of the size of liquids or in terms of the size of say oil versus water cut, where it really makes sense to use this versus kind of leaving the equipment as is? Um, yeah, so I would say um, probably the best bang for your buck in terms of uh, both reducing carbon and um, and integrating the system, it's probably about 10K. Um, we have a system that we're um, working on rolling out that is a fully electric system that can also do um, these kind of integration uh, or these kind of uh, stabilization activities. So uh, 10K is about that cutoff for the amount of heat input that you need to maintain stabilized oil over the winter, right? Um, we, we all know that with these 
wild temperature swings that we're seeing lately, um, it can be more challenging to operate in those um, environments because a lot of our equipment is subject to the ambient temperature. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, not only the heater treaters, but the tanks. And one of the things we're trying to do is eliminate tanks altogether. It's the security blanket of the industry and and totally understandable because we all want to continue, have continuous production. But um, tanks are also sort of the bane of uh, methane emissions. And um, and sometimes they, they can cause some major operational issues as well. So I'm curious with that, you're talking about removing tanks entirely. Have you guys looked at how removing tanks would, removing tanks versus, it sounds like you would have to then add in more pipelines instead of, instead of trucking oil from the tanks? Well, so a lot of the tanks are already tied in to an infrastructure. So in sites where you are sort of stranded and there's not a gathering line nearby, then, you know, there's no way to get rid of those tanks, right? Um, but in the situation where you do have gathering lines, a lot of operators still have the tanks on site so they can continue to produce if there is a problem with the pipeline, if there is a problem with the equipment they can and they go down at the facility, then they can still pump oil into the pipeline. So um, tanks are a really important buffer volume. And it might end up being sort of a change in philosophy. There are certain operators that have gone to models where they have a lot of central tankage. And if you have a lot of central tankage and you can um, send things to your own gathering line, um, then it's easier to get to a point where you're okay with taking tanks away. Right. So it's a very infrastructure dependent um, activity. And I think, you know, there are those who are willing to work together to get to a point where maybe they can take on more storage at central facilities or you have different, um, you know, a centralized tank battery um, for several different pads. So it's a change in infrastructure. It's a change in activity and in the way you want to do things. but at the same time, it's it's pretty necessary um, because tankage causes a lot of the methane emissions that we're seeing today. Um, it's not even, you know, um, I don't know how familiar you are with tanks. Uh, Vaguely. <laughs> <laughs> so they have these uh, giant hatches on top of them, sort of like, a, I don't know, like a mason jar lid, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you pop it off and you can slam it back on. It has that little seal on it, right? So you would have to push it down. Now, most of these thief hatches are supposed to be self-sealing after they pop open. Um, They add like a relief valve where um, they let out extra pressure. So you're not gonna harm the tank and you just have a little bit of relief. They're supposed to self-seat. And um, some of them don't seat all the way back. And some of them, because of the nature of the oil of uh, unconventionals, it's very um, condensate rich, right? So that condensate, especially when it's hot, when it hits the tanks, will start to eat away at those seals mm-hmm. as well. Um, and you know, different people have different solutions for that to go to a um, seal that's more resistant to condensate activity, to have monitoring solutions around the tanks so that they can you know, inspect that, go to different kinds of thief hatches. But um, in general, 
you can you could take out the entire problem. Um, so that was, uh, that was our big swing. Yeah. And I, I think that's, that's almost better. Just basically what you're saying is the, the problem, the main cause of, of leaky gas of a significant greenhouse gas emission is the tanks themselves. So it's not that it's not that you're trying to put a bandaid on the problem or fix the problem you see it's it's right here it's in the tanks you're saying let's remove the step that can that has the problem completely let's just move on from that and through that watching the video you guys reduce the the footprint of actual actual production which in itself means that there's more land for for either some other use or or leaving as is and and in those ways you're also saving a a compounded uh emissions reduction so do you have a an estimate on how much greenhouse gas emissions do you save and what exactly is that percentage compared to so um we've done direct comparisons using um a provider that takes uh, methane emissions and quantifies it over sites. And we have a nearby site that um, is done by the same operator and uh, they have about the same throughput. And from a methane only emission standpoint, we've reduced uh, emissions by approximately 50 to 60%. Now, it varies by time of day, by um, you know how well all the equipment is behaving. But you know, on our best day, just at purely methane emissions, um, we uh, outperform them by fifty to sixty percent. A traditional facility, so that facility has tanks. It has you know twenty six pieces of equipment that all are required to get oil to uh, stabilization quality. And our equipment counts closer to eight. You know, you just have less flanges. You have um, less uh, pieces of equipment that um, that uh, can can leak in general. Um, so that's from the methane standpoint. And from your uh, flaring standpoint, um, during that period, we were having particularly good days and they were having some particularly bad days. So we actually reduced flaring by 91% um, over that period. Now, that's not necessarily representative for the entire lifetime of those two facilities, but for that particular snapshot, it looked really good. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> great to put on the marketing material. And so with that, have you have you tried to correlate that into say a a net co2 reduction or somehow start moving towards like a, a co2 rating for those produced fluids yeah so when we translate that into the co2e that we're seeing from both methane um, and flaring um, and, and we just use calculated values for that initial um, estimate that was about 60% improvement on CO2E from that site per annum. Um, because we're going to estimate that there are some fluctuations, there are some better days and some worse days from, from each of those. Um, but that is our, our best guess. And so far, the quantifiable guess is actually a little closer to 80 to 85%. But 
again, um, we need more data. Um, we need some of our bad days in there too, so that we can make sure that we're getting a realistic picture of what we can do. Yep. So I'm curious when there's these terms out there like low decarbonization, deep decarbonization. And really when we talk about deep decarbonization, we're really talking about electrifying the grid, but I'm a pragmatist. I, I, realize we're going to need oil and gas for for quite a while. We're going to need that to get the base minerals we need in order to convert to electric vehicles. So where do you see the the eye production system and really specifically this this these liquids that you're producing in terms of that kind of low carbon low carbon hydrocarbon that you're producing? Where where do you think that would fall on the spectrum? Um, I think we're really trying to help our customers get to a net neutral or net zero uh, target. And that's why we're coming out with our um, electrified option. Um, and I think if they're able to use renewables for the electricity, then you've stabilized oil to go into the pipeline and um, any emissions are going to be from any reliability misses that you might have. It's really difficult to eliminate things like unplanned downtimes, just trips from the system. If the electric grid is unreliable, um, then you, you would run into issues where you would still have emissions from producing oil. But saying if you're running all the time, you've eliminated a lot of scope to emissions because you know our system allows remote insight into the system. So you don't have to necessarily you know drive an operator out there. You don't have to burn gas to heat your oil. Um, so you can make even more product than you were before. Um, and then you um, you're really able to to make. Um, meet the goals that you know they've shared with shareholders and, and production is one of those um, areas where you you die a death by a thousand cuts because it's not a big emitter right drilling from a one-time standpoint is going to emit more um, just like it the capital for drilling is is much bigger than for production right production's a really small slice of that but if you look at it over the lifetime of the well, all the OPEX you have to put in, um, all the little tiny bits of emission that come out of the system, and, and you'll realize over a lifetime you get a much bigger total. So if they can improve how they're producing their oil, then it's a much bigger chance to get to that net zero, net neutral um, target that they're after. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's... And that's one of the things that I, so being more of a, a geothermal guy, that's my background. That's what I work on right now. And that's one of the things that, that, that we harp on the most. It's, it's a firm base load electricity. And, and with that, you can, you can then make reliable estimates on your electricity load and what you have available using that you can make reliable projections on things like production and it sounds like it's it's very similar to what what the eye production system does in the sense of specifically how much oil you're getting out of the ground and can then put into the 
into the pipeline because of, again, making that the lazy river, smoothing out all of those bumps. So I've got two kind of similar questions. I'll, I'll frame them together. So we've kind of already talked about retrofitting existing production. With that same idea, one of the kind of key tenets of sustainability is the three R's, reduce, reuse, recycle. And in that sense, when you're looking at existing production and retrofitting an existing project, how much of that can you actually go in and reuse the equipment that's already in place and and try to reduce that that new construction footprint that ultimately adds in additional CO2 because of the new build? Yeah, and, and that's one of the things that's great about our Brownfield offering is that it can easily hook up into systems that maybe weren't meant for this kind of integration. And we can do the installation of the particular sensors and things that we need on site. And then you could even, you know, ramp up your production if you have available wells to tie back to the system. Um because you really need that temperature and flow optimization at that point to try and make everything work in concert. Um, and, and you can upscale that older equipment by utilizing a digital uh, companion that's going to, to sort of walk it through the paces that it really needs to go through, um, if that makes any sense. So there's yep. definitely a lot of availability and, and possibility for the brownfield in a relatively easy retrofit. Yeah, that's really cool. And that's the, I think right now with the idea of, of shale 3.0 and, and ways to optimize ways to, to be able to cut costs while increasing production. I think being able to go in, re-stimulate existing wells and, and utilize the existing infrastructure with new technologies and new, new systems is definitely a way to to ramp up that production while also, and even in some respects, more importantly, being able to cut the, the carbon footprint of, of those resources. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I feel like maybe the outside world that isn't really into oil doesn't understand is a lot of the majors are already considering these improvements that I'm talking to you about. Um, they have large teams that can study this and really dig in deep to how they can improve their production with their existing assets. But there are a lot of smaller players out there, you know, um, over 60% of the people who are drilling, um, you know, the wells right now, well, that have producing wells are not those guys. And so this is a great way that um, they can utilize to also decrease their carbon footprint with really minimal cost to them um, because they're, they're going to improve their carbon footprint by, by a lot just by putting this on there. Yeah. Yeah. That was actually one of my next questions talking about the independent oil producers, but <laughs> So now you've heard it. That's it is definitely something that everybody, anybody who's liquids heavy can can definitely get a a net benefit from. So I've got a few kind of wrap up questions that are not exactly related. What is the most important book you've ever read? So um, 
I think it's probably Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Um, it really makes you reevaluate, you know, your reactions to things in life about what you're you're doing and and you know when do you trust your gut feelings? When do you um, when do you need to evaluate things deeper? You know how do you how do you interact with others really? Um, and so I think it's it's a really great book that it, it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a tome. It's, it's pretty thick, but uh, you can at least read the first few chapters and, and get a really good feel for for what he's saying. But I, I think you'll be absorbed by it and just read the whole thing. All right. More books on the reading list. And when do you think we will be net zero as a society? Well, that's a really tough question because a lot of the the biggest emitters right now are the um, nations that need to grow, right? Uh, we're an industrialized nation, and there are other nations that would really like to get into that same space, right? And unless we are willing to help them get to a place like we are, where we can use renewable energy, where we can um, decarbonize, it, it's not going to happen, right? We we need to make sure that we lend a hand to make sure that we as a society, as all humans, can live on this planet for for longer. <laughs> you know, it's it's a it's a communal activity, and I think um, it, it's going to be difficult <laughs> to to get there in general. Um, so. Honestly, I think with the individual impacts that the climate is having on different people's environments and homes, that will spur people to action. And so I hope that um, it will allow people to make certain sacrifices to um, make the planet better for the future. So that's not a really solid answer. <laughs> um, you know, I'd love to say 2035, of course, but... Uh, it, 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 like many things that have to do with humans, there's not a, there's not a good solid answer. Yep. Yeah. And it's the, the thing that is occurring right now in, in, in the, so there's, there's this program through the department of energy called the energy earth shots. And the idea is that we're going to set these very, very lofty goals with the idea of if we can hit these goals, we would be able to hit the net zero target that has been set up by President Biden being, I think, net zero electricity by 2050. And as you point out, that is it is a lofty goal to get there and setting a number doesn't actually give us a pathway to get there. And for the U.S. as one nation to do it, it's, it's, we are a very, very small part of the population. And I think that's, it's really important to think about how, what about developing nations and how do we actually, how do we help them help the earth as we are trying to become this, this minimal footprint being on the earth? So it's a, 
it is, it's a fun question to ask because I've gotten several different numbers and the best answer I've gotten so far is that you have to be, it's going to be two generations of continual learning and continual growth towards net zero because you can teach the next generation, but they have to learn it, accept it, apply it, and also train the next generation to have those same values, to build in that habit before it actually becomes becomes an attainable goal. That's a great answer. Yeah, yeah, it, it was. I wish I came up with it. <laughs> so now you can ask me one question. How much do you think personal responsibility goes into decarbonization or meeting those net zero goals? It's a good question. I think that that personal responsibility is that helps us with the mindset. So as an example, when I moved to Dallas for for school, which was I was in Dallas full time from 2011 until present 2021. So for the 10 years that I was in school and then working at the university, I would ride my bike every day, even in rain. The only time I wouldn't was if I had somewhere else to go afterwards. And that was a personal choice, partially to, well, primarily for, for not having a, a large carbon footprint, also to be healthier, also because I was cheap. So multiple reasons, but it became a mindset to the point where I would always bike no matter what the weather was. And at that point, then I started making the decision if I had, if I had things to go to that were within a 10 or 15 mile radius, if I had an hour to bike there, then, and I, I could go in sweaty and, and looking a little disheveled, then I would do it. So that personal, that personal choice turned into me saving something like not much, but on the order of 1500 miles less driving a year. And that mindset has also, has also gone into me wanting to stay in geothermal and wanting to stay in energy production and that mindset has helped really what I do now with PetroLearn of trying to working towards oil and gas to geothermal well conversion. Really that the idea there is because we've got this resource, me, I've got my health, why not use it to ride my bike? And in that way I can save a little CO2 for somebody else in a developing nation who may not have those options right now. And the same right now with with these wells that are already existing, why not use that infrastructure that's already there and at the same time, maybe generate a little bit more income. And also if it just so happens, it's generating a emission free, low carbon electricity, that's even better. So I think that mindset has shifted almost everything for me. And I think that that comes across in the way I interact with others and the 
the decisions I make and, and really the way that I pursue my career. And I think that that, so that personal choice that I'm making that may not actually mean anything in terms of net CO2, it actually has a compounding effect throughout the rest of my life and, and everybody I interact with. Wow. I, I, that's a really great personal example. Yeah. And so that's why everybody should ride more bikes. <laughs> Maybe not in Houston. <laughs> yeah. Or they should add more bike lanes in Houston. That's where people get hit. <laughs> well, maybe <laughs> I would say more concrete barriers, but as somebody pointed out earlier, not on this podcast, but on a, on a previous podcast, concrete is the number three emitter of CO2 in terms of net emissions in, term, in industries. Yeah, just carbon capture right into the, into the fill material, man. Yeah, right? yeah, that's what we should do. Well, with that, I want to thank you, Isabel, for being on the podcast. I want to thank everyone for joining us on this episode of the Low Carbon Solutions Podcast. If you want to hear more great stories from the energy industry, connect with OGGN on LinkedIn or OGGN.com to check out these other stories from around the industry. Please remember, if you like this show, give it a five-star rating and a review. That helps us reach a wider audience to share these stories. And with that, get on a bike, don't get hit. Thanks, everyone. Join us again next week for another low-carbon, high-energy story on the Low Carbon Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.